remind you um, also that there, there are some children's bulletins here, and if you fill those out, uh, men, women, and children alike, too, at the end of the service, there are some blue baskets up here. We'll get those uh, separated. And you can come and claim a prize if you show whoever you came with what you did and filled that out. So it's kind of fun because we have some songs you can refer to now. And for a little while, we haven't been able to do that. So thanks. We try to figure out what this looks like. We're appreciative of your flexibility and grateful that you're here to enjoy that uh, again in person or virtually as well. So we are going to uh, take a look now at Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. If you were here last week, you heard the introduction to a new sermon series, and we grappled with Revelation chapter 1, a clear vision of Christ, talked a little bit about this, this complex book of Revelation, which can be interpreted in different ways. You can kind of go back and, and listen to that. As we open up to Revelation chapter 2, we find that this was historic uh, church that ex actually existed and that Christ is writing letters to these seven churches. The fundamental message that we hear repeated throughout each of these uh, churches that he addresses is to him who overcomes. So this is about overcoming and uh, in, in the midst of really difficult circumstances and He's going to have some themes throughout uh, as we open up each of these uh, letters to individual churches. We'll see that he, there's a description about who Christ is himself. There's a, a closing message about overcoming. And in between, he's addressing specific churches. So it's like these churches have reputations. Christ is aware of them, and we see that he's in the midst of them. So he is involved with his church to the angel of church. And Commentators have different ideas about what that means, but it's clear that these seven churches, roughly in the size of a circle, both represent the universal church throughout also all time, but then they have individual characteristics as well. And Christ is going to speak to them and tell them, in many cases, words of encouragement, uh, but also in most, five out of the seven, a word of rebuke. And there's a couple that he just has words of encouragement for. And so we call this seven letters of Christ to his churches. We say it's into ours as well because we'll be able to look at each of these and say, where are we? Uh, what would he commend us for? What would he rebuke us for? The church is God's people gathered together, and there is a distinctiveness to each individual church. It's a little bit like names. I don't know, when, when you, if you had the chance of naming children, at some point in your life and you start thinking about what do we want to name our child and um, oftentimes maybe you and your spouse will get together and throw out a name and you say a certain name, you know, Luke or something like that. It was like, no, because uh, they're going to be, there's all these Star Wars references that people are going to say growing up or whatever. And I knew somebody named Luke and he was, you know, he wasn't a kind person. So I think, or it could be the opposite. Like, yeah, Luke, that's solid. That's great. That's a, a biblical name. I knew somebody named Luke. He was a man of great loyalty and courage. And that is a great name because you identify names with experiences, with uh, interactions. And apparently this church these, each of these churches has a reputation as well. And Christ is going to come to each church and speak words of encouragement, in some cases 
rebuke as well. Now, this first church in Ephesians that we'll read about, this church of Ephesus, sadly, if there was an epitaph, if there was a label that comes from these verses, they'd be known, at least by Christ, as the loveless church. The loveless church. That seems to be pretty clear from verse 4. But let's read this together and then unpack it a bit and see what God has in store for our hearts this morning. So here's what we read in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Father, I pray you would give us ears to hear, that we would be overcomers. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here's Christ writing to this church. We see that the seven lampstands are representative of the churches themselves. And, and he comes and he writes this letter to uh, Ephesus. And that's uh, a place that you'll be familiar with if you are a student of the Bible or have had some interactions. There's actually a letter written prior to this to the Ephesian church by Paul. And we'll unpack a little bit of that a little bit later. But it's a, it's a, a, a recognized landmark for people who open up and read their Bibles. And Jesus comes and he starts with words of encouragement as he gives this letter. Uh, and, and he's pretty, pretty, um, pretty complimentary of them. The, the words of encouragement that come immediately, as you've seen in verse 2, are this. You have done great deeds, right? You, you're people who have done wonderful works. This makes me think of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. By grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, right, so that nobody can boast. But God has prepared good works for you to do in advance. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Paul had already written to them saying, look, You've been, you've tasted and seen that God is good. He's drawn you to himself. Now go and do the works that he's prepared for you. And they are apparently doing it. They've done a good job. You're, you're the kind of church that, that does stuff that is right and that is good, both collectively and individually. Your deeds measure up. Well done. That's a word of encouragement. And he says, furthermore, that I've seen your hard work, and that hard work sense is you've worked so hard that you're almost exhausted. So you're doing the right things, and you're putting all of your effort into them. You're spending yourself on behalf of these good works. And it's not just that you're working hard, but you're continuing to persevere. He commends them for their perseverance. I know your deeds, your hard work, 
and your perseverance. You, it's, it's almost like don't grow weary of doing good. And maybe for a long time they didn't, but they persevered. At the proper time, you'll see a, see a harvest. They haven't given up. They know that the, the walk with Christ is not just a short sprint. It's a marathon. It's a long obedience in the same direction. Right? The title of Eugene Peterson's book. And they've just persevered. When they felt like quitting, when you have sometimes, like this doesn't seem like it's worth it, they didn't. And Christ says, well done to you. And furthermore, he tells them, you've done a great job of standing up for what is right. You cannot tolerate wickedness. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. So they look around them and they see people doing things that are evil and wrong. And even, you know, in our contemporary era, perhaps we lift up tolerance as the greatest value of all. But they, he says, you've not done that. You look at something that's evil and you say it's evil. You're, you're not going to tolerate it. You're not going to say just for the sake of not being disliked, wink, wink, what you're doing is okay. You, you've done a great job, church, in Ephesus, of making sure there's a plumb line and you understand what is right and what is wrong and you're not willing to say what's wrong is right and what's right is wrong. You cannot tolerate wicked men. And furthermore, this church has fantastic theology. You've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. People who come into your midst and say, I'm a messenger of God, and here's the message for you. And there were tests, even in the Old Testament, to see whether or not those people were accurate, and they have stuck to it. As attractive as that message may seem, perhaps, to somebody, they've tested it and seen doctrinally you're not up to what God himself has said is true. These people did a great job of having their doctrinal statements and saying, what you have said does not line up with what God's word has revealed to us. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness, and what, what you're saying does not line up with that. That fantastic theology. They found them false. And he goes on in verse 3 to say, you've persevered, you've endured hardships for my name, you've not grown weary. Now, I don't know, but if we got a message, a letter from Christ today that was right here on the way and say, dear Mark, please read this to your church. And this is from Christ, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is in charge of everything, who knows everything about all things, including our hearts, his eye is on the sparrow. He knows everything about you and me and us collectively. And he said, you guys are doing a great job. You have done good deeds. You've not tolerated wickedness. You've persevered, even though you felt like quitting a million times. I felt like that, I'll be honest with you. But you persevere, you persevere. You've, you're doctrinally sound. You stand up for what is right. I think I'd be pretty pleased with a letter like that. Now, then we get to verse 4, right? And you know where we're headed because this is like the big punch in the gut that comes when Christ commends them with words of encouragement. And for those of you whose love language is words of encouragement, this is, sounds so good so far. And then we get to verse 4, yet I hold this against you. And these words will tear, your, tear you apart if you take them to heart. Yet I hold this against you. 
you have forsaken your first love. All that good stuff that you've done, and at the end of the day, it's pretty much meaningless because the love that you pursued in the beginning, you've turned away from. So all it is, really, is just good works and perseverance and raw grittiness. But the source from which all these things are to come, the love that I have given you and that I gave to you first is gone. You've turned from it. And now all you've got is good doctrine, good works, perseverance, and a loveless church. Now, one of the things we need to realize is that as we go through these churches, you'll see Christ is, he's going to bring, you know, words of rebuke uh, on the whole. In some senses, then people might say, oh, uh, what a loving church is, is a church that doesn't call evil, evil. A church that doesn't do good deeds, and Christ isn't saying that. He's encouraging them in all those things. Those are good things. But somehow, along the way, the, the, the reasons why you even went toward those things got lost. And you've forgotten and forsaken your first love. This is a, a very relational statement that Christ is making. When you talk about love, how do you quantify it? Has anybody ever figured out the formula for love? You know, sometimes people will say, um, you know, uh, of somebody who's giving a message, it needs to be more practical. Should I give you 10 steps toward greater, greater love? And you could get some ideas there, but it might be a, it might be a little off-center for some of you. It, it, it may vary. It's hard to quantify in many respects. What does love look like? Is, can you put love in a Petri dish and watch it grow? and then hand it over to somebody on the day of their marriage and say, there you go. Just keep adding a little bit of vinegar, a little bit of sugar, and a couple of other spices, raw grittiness, and bring, there you are, love. So there's something relational about this that's non-quantitative in a certain sense, although we can still see there are quantitative measurements to love. Even Christ himself says, if you love me, you will obey my commands, right? It seems like they're doing a good job of the obeying the commands of sorts, but somewhere along the way, they've lost touch with why they're doing this. The motive of their heart has gone slightly askew, and now it's just about obedience. And you know what happens when you get into that? You look a lot better than the people around you. And the kind of love that enters into somebody where they are and says, I'm going to support you even though you're not quite here yet, turns into something that shows you you're better than they are. You can be pretty proud of where you've come. And Christ says, you have forsaken your first love. The order of loves, that priority of love, the, the kind of obedience that flows from love has been disordered. And now you care more about your doctrine, your hard work, and not tolerating others. That's the word of rebuke. Love God and love others has been lost. Good theology turns into being right. Refusal to tolerate wickedness turns into legalism and fosters a sense of superiority. Do you see this in the church, people? <laughs> Where all of a sudden I'm better than others because of my good doctrine and my hard work. Perseverance, hard work, good deeds can be done for self-satisfaction or possibly even become 
the basis for earning right status before God. That was a huge struggle for the church. Now listen, Paul spent, this is unusual. The letter to the church in Ephesus is unusual because we have a whole book called Ephesians that gives us insight into the, the message this church had received from Paul. Paul spent a lot of time in, in Ephesus. He spent several years there. And, and so we get a pretty good insight. What, what's ironic about this is the other churches, we don't have letters to them. So this one, we've got a little bit more insight. And especially if you go back and read the book of Ephesians, you'll see this concept of love is there from beginning to end. And so when they hear you've forsaken your first love, they have something in mind. They have a book they cherished, a letter that they read over and over and over again. And in it, it says a lot about love. So those who would be receiving the message might think, whoa, we've lost track of why we're doing this. We've somehow, we've lost sight of the first love. You know, that, that first time you, you see somebody and, you, and, and maybe you know this is the one. And I've forgotten all about that. Now, Paul spent, if you, if you actually look back in, in Acts chapter 20, and I don't have this on PowerPoint for you, but if you want to and you have your Bible, you can turn back just to give you a sense of the context for this. In Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31, a, a little snippet. There's quite a bit written here actually about Paul's farewell to the Ephesian church. But in Acts 20, starting in verse 28, he's leaving uh, a, a final message to the elders, those he's trained to lead the church. He says in verse 28, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So again, I've kind of made the argument that Paul, I mean, this guy was a stud. Uh, I mean, he was beaten, he was flogged, he had all kinds of crazy things happen, he was a man of the sea, you know, he's got vipers attached to him, so, and he cries. <laughs> this is a man of, of God. D with tears warning him, when I leave, savage wolves are going to come in. So the Ephesian church took heed of that. They're not tolerating the practice of whoever the Nicolaitans are. Nobody knows. This is the only place we read about it, but clearly it was bad stuff coming in. And he commits to them the word of grace and says, I haven't coveted anything with you. And everything I did in verse 35, I showed by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus. It's more blessed to give than to receive. When he said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. Verse 37, they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was the statement, they'd never see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So this was a church that Paul knew very well and had a an attachment to. He knew the people in it. He spent years with them. So when he writes the book of Ephesus back to them, he knows all those people and he knows what he needs to write to them. Now, with that in mind, consider what Paul has, set, has written to them. In Ephesians chapter 1, if you were to read that a little bit later, you would see that he says, in love, he has predestined us to be adopted as his children as his sons and his daughters he says hey ephesian church 
after he left, he writes a letter back to them. He says, you are where you are today because God predestined you. In love, he adopted you. The motive, the source of you being called a son or a daughter of God is the counsel of God from all eternity in love. Agape, the same word that's being used in Revelation when he says you've forsaken your first love. These people came into a relationship with God because of what God had already done. We love him because he first loved us. And he reminds them as he opens up his letter that God's love for all time is upon you, not because of anything you've done, but because out of his goodwill, he approached you in love and called you to be his own. So that in Ephesians chapter 3, he says in verses 17 through 19, you have got to grasp the dimensions of God's love. He is praying for them. This love that loves before we've done anything to earn it, you know, some of us know what that's like as, as parents to love somebody just because they are yours. Even when they're unlovable, you still find this uh, love toward them. He says that's God's relationship to you. And that kind of love is very profound. And in fact, it's difficult to grasp that kind of love. I think even as parents, it's hard for us to grasp this kind of unconditional love. And so in chapter 3, he kneels before the Father and he, he prays this amazing prayer, Paul does, so that, he says, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. He recognizes in love you are predestined to be his children. And then he says, I am praying that you'll be able to grasp just how magnificent that love is. He's praying it with tears probably because he knows how difficult it is for us who use different measurements of love to grasp the full dimensions of God's love for us. And it's not just to be able to, to grasp it. It's, it's more than that. It's to be able then to take that love and to share it and show it with others. Because it's not an end in and of itself. Me and Jesus sipping coffee in a quiet place. Hallelujah. That's great. But that's not all you were created for. You were created to be in relationship not just with God, but with others. And guess what? God's a lot easier to love than others. So the test of it is your relationship with others, too. Is your love for God being translated into love for others? And that's why in chapter 4, Paul says this right from the beginning. In, in fact, backing up to verse 1, as a prisoner for, right after he prays, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. What does it look like to live a life worthy of the calling? A lot of the things the Ephesian church was doing, for sure. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. What does it look like to grasp God's love and go beyond just, you need to know it. How do you know it? by loving other people around you who, frankly, are terribly unlovable. 
It's hard to do. You want to live life worthy of the calling? Be completely humble. Humble, humility, that's the opposite of pride, right? Pride is born out of a sense of self and superiority. And, and you know, when somebody comes to you and confronts you, is the first thing the defensiveness where you strike back and lash out and say, you're wrong. That's not humility. Humility says, hey, I'll take responsibility. Even if it's for the 1%, I'll lean into that. You're 99% wrong, but I'll take responsibility for the 1%. That's probably not humility either, right? I've wronged you. Be patient. You need to bear with one another in love. This is what it looks like. You've forsaken your first love when you're no longer gentle and patient and bearing with each other in love. This is a church. Thank goodness we have the book of Ephesians because we don't have to wonder, what are you talking about? It's right here. In fact, look at verse 5, or chapter 5, in verses 1 to 2. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. You were loved. Now what do you do? You imitate that love. And live a life of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You imitate God by living a life of love. This is the Ephesian church getting this message. And when they hear, you have forsaken your first love, they know what he's talking about. They have stopped understanding the dimensions of God's love that so grasps their heart that their long-suffering for the people around them is almost never-ending. Now listen, this doesn't mean, this isn't the weak kind of love that doesn't stand up for what's right. You speak the truth in love. The question is, what really is your motive? Are you protecting your own kingdom or God's? And there are going to be other churches that are commended for their doctrinal integrity. So it's not as if Christ is saying, that doesn't matter to me. It does. But you have forgotten why you care about these things. And the manner in which you express yourself as you stick up for what's right is offensive to me. Because it's not done with a heart of love. And then you'll know what verse 25 says of chapter 5. This is so, so remarkable. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So here we go. If, you do, if you've doubted that this is a relational statement, you've forsaken your first love. Here we are in Ephesians 5, saying you want to understand Christ's love for, for you, look at a husband and a wife. Husbands, you are to love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. So there it is, Christ writing to the letter to the Ephesians, saying you've for, forsaken your first love, is just like a husband turning his back to his wife, no longer laying his life down for her, no longer uh, pouring himself out for her, cherishing her. What are, that, that's pretty terrifying because the Ephesian church would be getting this saying, we have turned our back to the bride. We said I do one day. I did a wedding last week. I'm doing one next week. And like I say, every single time those people come down the aisle, nobody's coming down thinking, I'm going to get divorced. I'll be one of the 
53 out of every 100. In the church, no less. Nobody's saying that. So there is a relationship here. There's an intent. And there's something that's given this couple an opportunity to say, we're going to spend the rest of our lives with each other. And it sounds so awesome in the beginning because you can't imagine anything other than the awesomeness you've experienced up to that point. It's almost like God saying, I love you no matter what. That's great. Now go and love others the same way. No, it sounds great. It's so hard to do. But you can do it. And I think you probably, if you're somebody who's entered into a relationship with God, there's probably a moment you can remember. Maybe it was a long time ago when you first really understood the dimensions of God's love. And that infused you with a capacity beyond anything you knew before, a divine ability to love other people who are unlovable. I'm, I'm guessing there were times when you saw that the forgiveness you have in Christ was easily extended to others who didn't even deserve it. And so what do we do with all this? Thankfully, Christ doesn't leave us just in a point where we think, wow, I've forsaken my first love. It's all disordered. I'm, I'm, I have no, nothing to do with that. Christ does tell us what to do. Your heart for God and for others has grown cold. And maybe it's on a scale. Maybe this morning if I said, how cold is your heart towards a, how, your love for God? Maybe I can't give you a list to quantify it. Your love for God on a 100-point on a, on a scale. 100 is fire hot. You're so impassioned with love for your Savior. You're at 100. Or it could be a 1. And you're just a frozen tundra. You have no 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 sense of love for, for Christ. I wonder where you'd be. What number would you give yourself? And how did it get there? Because I'll bet at one point it was in the 90-plus scale. Just like with marriages, right? What, what happened? When, when you wake up one day and all of a sudden you're like, I just don't care. I'm cold. I'm apathetic. Or I care more about doctrine than I do about where that's coming from. What happened along the way? How do you get back there? Well, Christ says if you're disturbed by that, and if you're not, that's disturbing. But if you are, there's something you do. Verse 5, remember the height from which you have fallen. Remember. One of the, and I've been trying to do this this week, think back. If you do have, if you're in a, in a marriage, for example, or if you've ever been in love with somebody, you can remember what that was like. You remember the emotions. You remember the sense of wonder, the expectation, all that sense of, wow, where is this relationship going to go? And you dream and you imagine we're going to have kids and we're going to have a house and we're going to have a job. We'll live by the beach or we'll live in the mountains or we'll live in Europe. And none of it happens. Maybe, I don't know, but there's all the sense of the wonder, the expectation, the excitement, because nothing can overcome love. The passion, the zeal, when you really grasp the concept of God's love, and maybe nobody here had a, a dramatic kind of conversion experience like that. I did. I had something very similar where all of a sudden God turned a light on in my heart and said, this is what matters most. 
And in a letter, I said, yes, I'm going to follow you. You're the object of my affection, my desire, and everything in life changed because of it. What mattered most to me, who I wanted to please, what decisions I was going to make about life, who I wanted to marry, was through a grid of the love that I have for my Christ. And I thought, what if he gave me that letter? What if that came to my mailbox? You've forsaken your first love. Can you imagine a wife coming home and saying, I don't love you anymore, goodbye. It's happened, it happens. That tears you apart. Forsaken my, I remember, how did we get here? I remember what it used to be like. What did I do along the way to grow so cold? Because it doesn't just happen overnight. You know that, right? Relationships take a little bit of work, a little bit of attention. We've used that grid before. With, like, and for Christ. You could almost do that with these letters and say these people were like Christ. Probably more than any other thing, they were like Christ. They worked hard. They persevered. They cared about what mattered in truth. But they didn't seem to be very, very spending much time with Christ. If you remember what it's like when you're first falling in love, I guarantee there is time spent with that person. You look forward to it. You can't stand that maybe you have to go home to a different place at the end of the night. You just want to be with them. And perhaps everything else doesn't really matter. Stuff doesn't get done, but it doesn't matter because I'm with the object of my affection. My loved one, now look, marriage isn't just about passion and emotion because there's things to be done around the house. There's money to be earned. There's diapers to be changed. There's choices to be made. So you can't stand in that, stay in that kind of la-la, fuzzy, emotional state. But sometimes, after 20 years, when the kids are grown up, a husband and wife look at each other and say, what are we doing with each other still? Now that all of our obligations are finished, do I really still love you? And how is it cultivated along the way? Think about it. Remember, remember that. And, and Christ doesn't just leave us there because he tells us to do two things. Beyond that, remember what it was like, repent, and there's going to be a theme throughout all these letters, repent, which means stop heading in that direction, turn around, and go back in that way. You're wandering from love of God and love of Christ, so turn around intentionally and start walking toward the object of your affection. Because until you do that, until you recognize, yes, I'm loveless, and I admit it, And now I'm going to turn and I'm going to start heading in this way. And what do you do? What does it look like to walk in that way? He says, do the things you did at first. And I think that's part of where the remembrance comes in. Can you remember the things that you did at first that drew your heart into an intimate relationship with Christ? The king of the rulers of the earth who says, I'm in a relationship with you. I'm going to seal it with blood, a covenant relationship. We're in this together. And let's cultivate that then. What does it look like to spend time with Christ? If you don't know, there's probably people in this room who can tell you what that's looked like for them. And, you know, there there are different love languages. We figured that out along the way, too. So what my, my relationship with God, although it's got some similarities to yours, might look a little different, too. The things that cultivate love in me. That's why it takes some reflection. Can you remember? Can you remember those first days 
when you tasted and, and saw that the Lord is good. Do those things. Do them. This is part of the process of, of melting the icy heart that we have and cultivating a sense of intimacy with the God who's loved us. That marriage is another example. Do the things you did at first. This is why they say keep dating your wife. Date what? Time, money, energy. I don't got any of that stuff. Well, fine, but you're cultivating it. You're, you're going to cultivate distance. You prioritize the things that matter the most. And your kids, if you have them, they need a mom and a dad who love each other. Through thick and thin, to the end. And not just because they work hard, they persevere, they give you good lessons, but because they're in intimate relationship with each other. And all those things, that's a stable fixture for them in their life. It doesn't mean that if there's brokenness in the past, you've ruined everything. Of course not. Even the most perfect of marriages is going to fall short. But it's hard to give you a list of things, say, check, we got that, check, we got that, check. See these other things, hard work, perseverance, good theology? Those are kind of checklists. Yeah, we got it, we got it. But Christ knows your heart, and he can look in and say, you're loveless. That is absolutely terrifying to me because you can start wondering, is that me? Am I only doing this because I get a paycheck, because people say you're good at it, because... Or because I love Christ and take all that other stuff away, it doesn't matter. I still have him. And I don't know. I wonder, is that true? So what do I do? I remember, I repent, I do the things I did at first. That's what Christ says to do. He's the one who's telling me you're distant from me, so what does that look like? Could I give you a checklist? Maybe. Read God's word, pray, all that stuff, of course, with, like, and for Christ. But this is a message to you this morning, not just to me. What are the things that you did at first? Remember, repent, do the things that you did at first. And then you'll, you'll avoid this word of rebuke. You know, the... People who struggle with assurance of salvation might be thinking, wow, I'm out, you know, I, I'm not in. And you have to remember that Christ seals with his blood your status as child of God. Ephesians chapter 1. But there's still a warning here, isn't there? The warning seems to be that if this church operates just like the Ephesian church, there'll be a day when that lampstand is removed and the church ceases to exist. Can you go to a church service in Ephesus today? I don't think so. That Ephesian church doesn't exist anymore. Somehow, that warning came about. And, and it seems like this loveless church may have been, you know, convicted for a moment, but it's not here any longer. Now, that's an old church, right? <laughs> I don't know, thousands of year, years from now, if the Lord hasn't returned and things are still going on, Redeemer Church is still going to exist. But I sure hope we make it 10 years, or 20, or 30, or 40, or 100. And that the reason that our lampstand isn't removed is because we were loveless. Let's not be loveless. Let's do, let's, that's why I say it's not just a Christ letter to the churches back then, it's to us today. Maybe we've got good theology of oh, the PCA. We figured it all out. We're the best. Everybody else is wrong. 
I mean, we're doing the best we can, you know, humbly with conviction of theology, you know, persevering, maybe standing up for injustice at 2 p.m. at Washington Park. Great, but you have no love. May that not be the accusation against Redeemer Church 10 years from now. 2030, when there's no lampstands, like that church closed, let's go on to the next one. God, please don't let that happen. And that, that is not just a collective thing. The church is individuals coming together. You are part of Redeemer Church. I mean, maybe just not as intimately involved as, as others, but some of you have been around a bit longer, but you're still here today identifying in some way, and you're part of the little C church, but you're definitely part of the big C church if you've known this love of Christ. So this isn't just 2,000 years old. This is very contemporary. Got a lot of good things going on. Have you forsaken your first love? If so, remember, repent, and do the things you did at first. Father, I pray.